Good morning, Northbrook Church. It's good to see your faces. Today we will be reading from the book of Titus, chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning. Uh, before I introduce Jason here, I did just want to remind you, many parents already know this, but it is Family Worship Sunday. And so one of the things that we, we love, uh, lots of things at Northbrook, but one of the things we really love is the kids that God has given us. And so we want to make it easy for these kids to uh, come to Jesus. One of the prayers I pray for uh, my little Nate is that he would just continually come to Jesus out of Luke 18. Uh, and so here in the gathering, we want to make it easy for you to see and worship and uh, be encouraged by all Jesus is at Nor in Northbrook Kids. We want to make it easy for you to engage who Jesus is. So parents, just know that. Know that we love your kids in here. We love your kids getting to hear uh, God's word. And we know your kids are at all kinds of different levels, and we accept that. Uh, my oldest kids, I tell them, you do not leave the sanctuary unless it's an emergency. Uh, and sometimes they have an emergency. Uh, my younger kids don't have quite that same rule. Uh, and there's just kids in different ways and different places and different capacities. Um, and so one of the things we want uh, you to feel freedom as a parent is just feel freedom to uh, engage, parent your kid in this moment as you, there's no judgment here. Uh, well, let's be honest, there's judgment. But we try to lay that judgment down and we try to not judge one another. I'm just, let's be honest, okay? Um, and yeah, so we love to have kids in here worshiping Jesus. So Jason Henricks, 
uh, a good friend of mine that is going to be preaching his actually first sermon uh, for us uh, this morning. And that feels funny to say because he's taught a gajillion times uh, at Northbrook. He's uh, Well, I'll let you say because you have that in your intro. I won't steal that from you. Uh, but if you know Jason, you love him. I mean, he's just a, a, a dude that's just really easy to love and enjoy. Uh, me and Jason have gotten a lot of time together over these last four years from the beginning of we had a little um, call back to live stream uh, on the Slack channel this week as when he was in our house all the time filming uh, during the pandemic. And then uh, also just uh, throughout the years as we got together over many lunches talking through books and talking about Jesus. And so I'm so thankful for him. Love him. He's such an encouragement to me. Uh, I know he's uh, encouragement to uh, you in so many ways, and we're excited to have him preach. There you go. You teach what accords with sound doctrine. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Morning, Northbrook Church. Uh, as Jake had mentioned, uh, my name is Jason. I am a fellow member and servant here with you here at Northbrook Church. Uh, I'm the deacon of Bible studies. Um, it's kind of just like a thing that we throw on there because I do a lot of things. Uh, but really what I really love to do in the church uh, and I get to uh, serve you in this morning is um, I really love teaching theology to the church in a way that is accessible and that a uh, way that just um, leads us to follow and love Jesus all the more. Uh, and so the reason why I started with uh, Titus 2 verses 1 through 15, or 1 and 15, uh, I wanted my very first words up here uh, at Northbrook preaching to you to be God's words, not mine. Uh, very similar to what Jake did on March 29th, 2020 with Colossians 1. Um, and that that's just really important for us to understand that the reason why we have this, this peace uh, in the middle of our gathering is because God has spoken to us, he's revealed himself to us, and uh, he wants us to know him through that revelation. Um, and so that command there, teach sound doctrine, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. I'm just going to pray real quick that uh, the Lord does that in me, does that to you. By the power of the Spirit, Father, um, would you direct my words this morning to encourage and rebuke with all authority uh, for the sake of righteousness and holiness, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of your people. Amen. And so starting off, I just want to give a super clear gospel presentation. I want to let you know what the gospel is, and the reason for that is uh, we're kind of coming in the middle of uh, the book of Titus, starting on uh, chapter 2. And so the gospel is this. You can say it a, a few different ways, but um, God saves sinners, and God makes all things new. All of humanity has disobeyed and sinned against God, and yet God offers salvation to anyone who puts their faith in Christ and his work. And so Jesus took on humanity, he lived a perfect life, he, he died in the place of his people, and he overcame death by raising from the dead on the third day. And after appearing to many witnesses and ascending into heaven, Jesus currently sits at the right hand of the Father, eagerly waiting for his people to come to him in faith before he returns and makes all things as they should be with the world. That is the gospel, and that is the setting of the book of Titus that Paul is writing He's writing to this newer pastor, Titus, and he's instructing him to install elders and guard against uh, false teachers that would be anti-gospel, anti what we just talked about, Christ and his work. That's what all of chapter one was about. So got you all, uh, all summed up in like 
two minutes. So these false teachers, they claimed to know God, but their doctrine was unsound and their living was self-indulgent. Is that my beard? Great. (laughs) Only downside. Okay, Uh, and so the reason why we are zeroing in on Titus 2 today is if we're not careful, we have the ability to act like those false teachers. Even if we say we believe in the gospel as Christians and that we align ourselves with sound doctrine of the gospel, but if we're not careful and if we're not vigilant, our lives may not necessarily reflect this, both within the church and to the world. We may have false doctrine that leads us to unrighteous deeds and self-indulgence, and self-indulgence that leads us to develop false doctrine. It goes both ways. And so I'm going to have Connor put up the, the main point on the screen. Um, God has saved a people to present the gospel within the church and to the world. And that's the focus of Titus 2 that I want to look at today. My desire this morning is, is that we look at the inspired words of the Holy Spirit in Titus 2, and we see that God has saved a people to present the gospel within the church and to the world. Our faith is a vibrant one, our faith is a living one, and to believe the gospel and not believe false teaching is to both hold fast to the truth of the gospel and also to present the gospel through how we live. And so in verses 2 through 10 of this chapter, the categories that Paul distinguishes between uh, within the church are based upon gender, they're based upon age, and they're based upon authority. These are the groups that are being addressed. Pastors and bond servants, older men and younger men, older women and younger women. And much is to be said about a lot in this passage. For some reason, I uh, chose a whole chapter to preach on. Uh, But for the sake of having a more singular focus and for your time, uh, we're gonna be focusing on older and younger men and older and younger women. Um, And should I have the uh, privilege of preaching to you through Titus 2 again, we'll talk about pastors and bond servants. Um, But for older men and older women, younger women and younger men, we're gonna walk through some key commands uh, of character for each of these groups. Um, How we can all, as Christians, embody Christ-likeness in them and what the purpose of this call on the Christian life is. And so for each of these groups, all of these groups that we talked about today, and even the ones we're not, uh, the instruction to every group is centered around this one principle, be self-controlled. And so self-control is the most mentioned phrase or compound word, whatever you wanna call it in this passage. Out of everything in Titus 2, self-control is said four times. And so let's look at self-control in comparison to the people of Crete in Titus chapter 1, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Corrupt, evil liars, doing whatever evil act brings, brings pleasure to their bodies. To point out the obvious, this is the state of where we live today. People will tell you that this is the worst generation to ever live and we've turned from how great our country used to be. Uh, some others will tell you that as time goes on, we're gonna, we progress towards this enlightened goodness together. But as the book of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Yesterday is like today in terms of the evil deeds of our society. Then as it was, and also today, self-indulgence, not self-control, is the overriding preference of our world. Instead of sexuality expressed through the appropriate and life-giving avenue of marriage, we choose to indulge ourselves in things like pornography, fantasy, perversion. 
Instead of living with and evaluating our fears and our doubts, we indulge in entertainment to numb a calloused conscience. And bringing it maybe a little bit closer to the ground for you, when, when your wife misunderstands what you meant to say, instead of exhibiting patience and un, uh, understanding and evaluating where your delivery might have not been the best, um, you may indulge in a self-righteous anger. Or maybe you're a more sophisticated man than that, um, and you have a palate for secretly harboring resentment towards your wife instead, choosing condescension over outright fury. And so the people of Crete, the people at your work and next door, might just tell you in response to all of this that all sexuality is good as long as it's consensual. Self-numbing is really just taking care of you and yours, and speaking your truth no matter what destruction it brings is good and right. But the gospel presents a different way. God has saved a people to present the gospel within the church and to the world. And so if you are in Christ, that's you. If you're in Christ, that's you. God has saved you to present the gospel through your life, and in particular, through self-control. And so I, I want us to take a look at the particular ways that we are instructed to carry this out, this uh, self-control uh, in all of our different roles. And so first uh, is the older men. That's the first in the text. Uh, and so we're not given a hard and fast category for what an older man means here, um, but primarily we're talking about maturity in the faith. Nevertheless, age is definitely a factor. And, and we look, when we look at this category of older in the New Testament for both men and women, we should think less about I hope, think less about 20s and 30s and probably more about up into 40s, 50s, and even more so 50s and 60s. And so the church is this redeemed people of God. We're gathered together in the form of this local expression of a family, and these older men fulfill a sort of fatherly role within the church. And within our families are all sorts of people of all different ages, uh, within our church family as well. We've got fathers, mothers, older and younger brothers, older and younger sisters, um, and, and we have kids running around everywhere, and it's awesome, uh, and the most influential and culture-setting people within the church are going to be the fathers. And if that's not the case, something's wrong. In both the family of the home and in the family of the church, this is the case. And so in both those two families, the home and the church, the fathers play a huge role in the direction of the family. The well-being, emotional development, and spiritual development of your home and our church are directed by you, fathers. Hear the words of Proverbs 3 from a father to his son. Hear my son and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. And so setting, direction, setting the direction of your home, you as a father figure, whether you have children in the home or you have children in the faith, verse 2 here in Titus 2 is for you. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And so I want to zero in on uh, a couple aspects that Paul has listed here for older men, and uh, it's these two, dignity and steadfastness. And so when you hear the word dignity, what do you think that means? If I'm honest, I'm tempted to view dignity through the lens of financial provision. Uh, I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not the only one who fears, feels this way, but when my savings account is lower than I would like it, um, especially after four plus months of unemployment, there goes my feeling of dignity. I feel like a failure and I feel like a fool. And, and for you, dignity might mean right status. 
Are you viewed as a capable provider and protector in your home in the exact way that you have made up how it should be? Dignity is not a number, it's not a title, it's not a status. Dignity says that you are worthy of honor and respect because your self-control is in Christ. Because you reject the idea of self-indulgence and instead move into a place of of self-control, you honor yourself and your family through self-denial. And so a dignified man is also a steadfast man. And so to to be steadfast in love is, is a promise to lay yourself down, to, to self-deny, to sacrifice for the sake of the other person and the other people to the point of death. And so that steadfast part of the love is that it keeps doing. Steadfastness is, is enduring and it's long-suffering and it's consistent and it's repetitive and it's tedious and it's good and it's reflective of the character of God. And so older man father, older brother, in your attempt at dignity, your desire to to attain honor, right honor and right respect, where does steadfastness come into this for you? In your attempt to disciple your wife and, and your kids, are you steadfast and realistic or are you spotty and idealistic? In your attempt to provide for and protect for your family at work, do you sacrifice meaningful time with your kids and with other men in the church for the sake of adding extra padding to a savings account. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so let your steadfastness in the work of the Lord, not the labor of your own hands, speak to your dignity and to your self-control. God has saved you, so present the gospel for the sake of of your dignity and in your steadfastness. And so moving on to um, older women in verse three of Titus, we see older women are uh, are likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. And so switching from gears from older men to older women here in Titus to, you know, focus on this uh, whole section, I want to kind of, I want to address the elephant in the room. Um, I'm a 28-year-old single guy, and I'm about to, to preach to the women in the room, okay? Um, I'm going to talk about gossip and alcohol, uh, and in a minute, I'm going to talk about wives submitting to their husbands and loving their families. But Paul the Apostle, okay, Paul the Apostle, and also an unmarried dude, he's the one writing these words to Pastor Titus. And so what I may be lacking in experience uh, in marriage and age on my end, I pray um, may be made up for in an outside perspective that is rooted in the Word of God. Lord willing. And so that addressed, uh, let's look at that word slander. And we'll only be here on this one for a moment. Uh, there are a lot of different ways to think of that word slander. Um, but I think the word gossip probably sits a little bit more readily with us today. Gossip is the self-indulgent pleasure of loving words about misfortunes, trouble, and hurt of others. Slander and gossip, they seek to ignore the image of God in a person and instead makes the other person a dishonorable story for petulant self-pity cloaked in self-righteousness. The tongue is no unimportant part of your body. The tongue, rightfully used to give life, to encourage, to heal the brokenhearted, is in our worst moments used to tear down. 
To gossip is to tear down based upon other people's lived stories. Much of the time when they're at their lowest. And the tongue is also used, get this, this might be one that, that is a little bit more insidious, to pry and get information that you have no business knowing. When something goes wrong with a person at work or in the church or next door, something goes awry in their marriage, and you have no business knowing the details for one reason or another, you, you make sure to you know, talk to this person and get this information. Talk to this person, get a little bit of this information. Build a story up for yourself, and then with your mouth, you continue that story about their misfortune. And so the tongue is a very dangerous thing. But, uh, as we see here in this verse, it can also be used to build up. Uh, we're given the negative here of don't slander, but older women are also given the instruction of be reverent. If you use the tongue rightly, if you use the tongue rightly, um, what would it look like for you to be reverent, to build up the people in church, in your church? Not just to avoid slander, but to promote godliness and honor and worship with your tongue. And so instruct others to do the same. And so the, the other, moving on, the other main warning, warning or avoidance that Paul mentions is alcohol. And so we're a Baptist church here, um, but we're like one of those reformed ones with like a splash of charismatic, some of us more than others. Uh, and if we weren't Baptists, Randy and I would probably be Anglicans, honestly. Uh, and so we may not possess the same like trepidation with alcohol that First Baptist Church of the Old South may, but we should still be very careful, probably more careful than we are right now. The phrase used here as a warning for older women is slaves to much wine. It doesn't say avoid going past the legal limit in the United States. And yes, it also doesn't say avoid all alcohol. But what it does say is slaves to much wine. And so church family, women in the church, what is your relationship to alcohol? And I'm gonna give you an extreme example here. I really hope that this isn't you know, something that would be true of us. Um, but let me give you a little bit of an extreme example here. Um, because some of its branches might find its way into the roots of your heart. And so a common sentiment in, in this world um, when it comes to just the difficulties of motherhood um, and when it comes to kids starting, quote, their reigns of terror, um, we hear this phrase that mom pulls out her mommy juice and pours it out of the wine bottle. Unfortunately, I've heard that a lot. Uh, and it's the only way that she can go on and bear the next day of motherhood. And honestly, to underestimate it, it's embarrassing and it's disrespectful. And so, and so hear this. This goes for older and younger women and for everybody, the men too. You may not call your wine mommy juice, and if you do, please stop. Um, but you may use alcohol as an escape. Think about that for a moment. Do you use alcohol as the sake, uh, for the sake of an escape? Does the, but does the buzz of, of alcohol take the edge off of a hard day? And when it does, does that drive you to seek God in, in, that, in that anxiety with a clearer mind? Or does it become a habit of self, self-soothing, self-indulgence without addressing your worries? I, I can't determine the line of alcohol for you, and I shouldn't. But instead of self-indulgence, of, of hiding behind alcohol as, as a tool for your apathy, what would it look like to turn self-indulgence into self-control? God has saved a people to present the gospel within the church and to the world. How do you present, how do you show the gospel in your life via self-control, in avoiding the slander, and avoiding being a slave to much wine?
And so moving on to younger women, uh, Paul's instruction to Titus is, is more of an indirect one. Uh, in all other sections of this passage, uh, Paul is telling Titus, hey, say this to these people, but not so with the younger women. Uh, now that doesn't mean that Titus and therefore pastors cannot speak about these issues to, to these young women. The point here is that the role of older women instructing younger women is not an option, it's a necessity. And the emphasis here is not younger women go and seek out the older women, though you can and you should. Rather, the emphasis here is older women go and teach what is good and train the young women. And so, older women, you are being called to make yourself available. Now, to do this, you're gonna need to build some margin in your life uh, to disciple younger women and to mentor them, even if it's just a little bit of margin. And if you're a woman hearing that and you're feeling shame for not doing this as you should, take a deep breath. I'm gonna say this a few times, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no shame to be had here in this or anything that we talk about today. Shame is not from the Lord. The Spirit is not calling you into shame. Instead, the Spirit is calling you into encouragement. Look back at the women who have spoken life uh, over you over the years by honoring God and, and, and how he's honoring God, or how you are being called to honor God in the same way. It doesn't need to look like a lot. It doesn't need to be something that you do every week for three hours. It doesn't need to cons- consume everything. It just needs to be a part of your communal walk with Jesus. I think we forget that sometimes uh, as, as, American, as American Protestants, evangelicals, whatever you want to call us. Um, we think about our faith as this individualistic thing first and then move into the communal with it. Um, but the picture that we have in the, in the New Testament is so different. It's we walk out this communal faith together and that in turn drives us in our individual faith. And so when we see calls like this to, to walk into community, that, that's the priority um, because, because your brothers and your sisters are going to be the ones to point you to Jesus. And as you do this, older women, the Lord will be glorified for your purposeful move towards these younger women following Jesus. So moving on to verse four and five. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so instead of falling into you know, the, the mentality of, of, um, our, our, of kids are just a burden, what would it look like for, for you as a wife to recognize the difficulties of marriage and motherhood and count it along with all of the joys as a blessing? And so while we're on the topic of motherhood and, the, and of marriage, I just wanna pause for a moment. There are women that you know, either in this church or elsewhere, um, that at one time or now desire to have a husband and do not have one. There are women that, that you and I know, either in this church or elsewhere, that desire children and do not have them. And so if, if either of those situations is where's your, where you're at, I just want to stop here for a second and make some space. You being a woman without a husband or kids does not define you. And, and I know it's not the same. It really isn't. Um, but I yearn with you as a man who has desires but has not a family of his own as well. You've heard it before, and, and I don't want to blow past this, um, and, and it may sa- sound a little pithy in the moment, but, but the Lord sees you, 
and he knows you. And I know it's confusing, and I don't know why he does what he does. And honestly, as I reflect on, on my end of it, I move back and forth between uh, sadness and anger and apathy about my own standing. But God is not holding any good thing from you. He's not withholding anything from you. And, and I wish I had more for you, um, but I can say that he is not withholding any good thing from you. I know it feels like he is because there's this good and there's this right desire that he's not answering in the way that we want right now. But he isn't. He's giving you himself. And so this isn't, this isn't one of those like be grateful for what you have because others have not thing. I mean, that's true, but that's not what this is. Um, instead, it's a call for, for, for those for being grateful um, for your call to love your husbands and children. It's easier said than done, okay? Um, especially since I'm not the one having to do it. Um, but, but praise the Lord that love isn't just some feeling, right? When the days are good, it's really easy to love. Gratefulness and happiness, they give way to, to love so easily. But, but what about when sorrow and depression and stress occupy your home instead? If, if love was this feeling that you had to let wash over you, this command to love your family would be quite cruel. At the end of an awful day where your kid just threw up in the car, not once but three times, uh, your kids are fighting over quite possibly the most minor thing in existence, and, and you didn't get much sleep last night or the night before or the night before or the night before. Dad just got home from work to just work some more. How can you be expected to have some warm, fuzzy feeling of love? That's not what it is. Let's look at John chapter 15. Let's look at the love of God. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so to love is to lay down your life. And, and I asked a few women of Northbrook, both in the uh, younger and the older category, um, to give me some of their thoughts on this passage in Titus. And so if you can put this one up. Uh, this is a quote from, from Alexa. Who would not want to love their family and lay down their life for the sake of their family as Christ did? We as women have not been created, or we as women have been created to be nurturers, caretakers, and helpers. This is a joy and not a burden. And so loving your family, like, it looks like how Christ loves his people. And in this text, there's a few ways uh, we're, we are given to, to love your families in specific ways. And so looking at verse 5, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of the Lord may not be reviled. And so three ways listed here in this verse that you can love your family. Through sexual purity, through submission to your husbands, and managing your home. And, and all three of these things carry a lot of baggage for many of us. And they are deeply weaponized by our culture and even within the church at large. In regards to sexuality and submission and, and managing your home, we run into some seriously misguided principles on what is good and right in these areas. When it comes to sexual purity, so much of what it means to maintain a good and right sexual ethic for both men and women is thrown out. And instead, it becomes a game of blame women for how they act, 
dress, do, don't do, say, etc. Submission to husbands, this somehow becomes a call for women to either position themselves under the authority of all men by keeping their mouths shut and keeping their opinions to themselves, or culture tells you that, that submission is an evil call from a bunch of backwards bigots. And then when it comes to managing your home, you can't win. You, to work outside the home in any capacity is to defy God's call on your life, and to not work outside the home somehow becomes looking down on women who do when you're really just trying to serve your family well. And so when we run into these cultural moments like this, we find ourselves doing one or more of these three things. We veer leftward, uh, siding with, with empathetic progressives, ignoring the reality and the beauty of gender roles that they love to reject. Or we steer rightward, and we become one with the culture-warring conservatives and the trad wife movement, ignoring how much of their instruction doesn't come from scripture, but comes from a Sears catalog from the 1900s. Or, here's the sneakiest one, okay? The sneakiest one is thinking that the right response is somewhere in the middle. Find, find the center, find the balance. Negative 10 is over here, positive 10 is over here, let's find a nice middle zero. No solutions from the world, please. Stop looking for balance in all of these things and start looking for faithfulness. God in his word calls us to a very, very different way. And in particular, I think we, ha- I think we forget truly how revolutionary the Christian ethic is in our world when it comes to sexuality and when it comes to the dignity of women. And, and so the time that Titus was written, it was a time when women were used at will for sexual pleasure in Roman society. In, in the ancient Jewish portion of society, they found a way to do the same uh, by coming up with unreal reasons to divorce your wife and move on to another woman. And so Jake quoted a letter uh, within the second century church a while back um, in a sermon, and I'll paraphrase it a little bit here. The Christians share their table with everyone, but share their bed with no one. And so the, the, the Christian sexual ethic here, when we talk about purity in this passage, it's not a centrist flag between two worldly army bases. It's a call to a different method, to something else entirely. It's a call to intimacy within the confines of marriage in a holy and a pure way that reflects not the self-indulgence of the flesh, but self-control and self-deference in the spirit recognizing the dignity of women and their beautiful task in marriage in the world, it's, it's not a limiting factor. It's not a ceiling keeping you from experiencing something great, but instead, what God has for us in his word when he talks about this is a call to reflect Christ and to reflect his church. And so young women, Paul says, are to be pure. He also calls y'all to submit to your husbands and manage your home. And so, quick aside on the management of the home, and I kind of want to clarify what that means, what that doesn't mean. I talked about it briefly a second ago, but working in the home, it doesn't mean you can't work outside the home. In fact, if financially necessary, Scripture calls it good for women to help provide for their family in that way. Proverbs 31 in the Old Testament and also Priscilla in the New Testament are examples of women working outside the home and being commended for their character in it. But... Working in the home is your role in the family. Keeping and managing your home many times means having a two-income household, and sometimes it doesn't. But what it always means 
is that when what is outside of your household is keeping you from loving your family, by loving your family well in managing your home, it needs to be dropped. It's not a matter of priorities, or it is a matter of priorities, and, and any job or volunteering or, or any other meaningful thing is not priority over your family. In the book of Genesis, God creates man, and in so doing, he creates him needing a partner, a complement, a helper, the woman. That word helper is the same word that is used to describe God, the Holy Spirit himself throughout scripture. And so looking at the whole, let's look at the whole, uh, the life, uh, the life of the Christian and how the Holy Spirit works in that. What, what does he do? What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, he enables you and I as followers of Christ to walk in faith. He, he points us to the person in the work of Jesus, and when we fall into despair, the Holy Spirit helps us by lifting our faces to Christ in hope. And when we sin, the Holy Spirit reminds us that there is grace and mercy to be found in Christ. That is also the role of a wife and mother in the household of God. Now, to be clear, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, it can't be, like, that work cannot be replaced by the work of the wife. And honestly, that mindset uh, is where a lot of marital strife can start. But so many of the things that the Holy Spirit does, what he does in the work, uh, what he does working in the life of a Christian, a woman can reflect in how she loves her family. Ask yourself, as a woman, a few of these questions. What do you enable? In other words, do you provoke your husband and kids to anger, or do you enable them in their faith? Who do you point to? Is it about you or is it about Christ? Are you your husband's peace or are you hus your husband's stress? And when your family sins against you and they're gonna do it plenty, what's your response? Living a life pointing to Jesus, just like the Holy Spirit does, you can be a reminder of the grace, of the mercy, peace, in prayerfulness and love that is found in Christ. Submission is a life of deference, of deferring. Submission to your husband is not just this, but it is this. Submission is looking at your vaulted ambitions and laying them down for your family. And the reward is great. A husband that sees your loving management of the home and kids that see how much you love their dad. And so, Reflect on the love of Jesus and his service and, and on the deference of the Holy Spirit in pointing to Jesus as the basis for how you love your family. God has saved a people to present the gospel within the church into the world. And so God has called you, young woman, to hear from older women and to present the good news of Jesus through sacrificial, pure, deferring love like Jesus. This shows your family, your church, and the world what God's character looks like. And so, uh, moving on to younger men. I wanna, talk, I wanna take a moment to talk to younger men from a younger man. Despite our section being the shortest in this passage, I think there's some great learnings from the Spirit and how we are to walk out our faith in them. Let's look at Titus 2.6. 2, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, every group has been given some self-controlled directive of some sort so far, with specifics given to each group. But younger men, we don't really have anything listed here. We get 
be self-controlled. And so, honestly, when studying this passage for today, I, I found very little in the way of why there is so little directive for the younger men here. But with a bit of digging, um, I've landed on what I think, what I think are two reasons. And these two reasons are that, that we should grow into and be like the older men, as mentioned um, in, in verse two. And we need a heavy do- dose of self-control just across the board. I mean, admit, admittedly, that last one's a little bit of conjecture, but, but imagine if Paul decided to list out all of the things the younger men need to be self-controlled in. Imagine that. I mean, I can think of four immediately. Anger, pride, lust, greed. So Paul's call to the younger men is, is to just keep self-control top of mind just all the time in all of it. But also, there's some symmetry uh, from, from younger men to older men, like there is from younger women to older women. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So everything that we've talked about uh, in the beginning about dignity and steadfastness, this is something that we should look back at and look to move forward into. We should aim to be level-headed young men, honorable, seasoned in the faith, and abounding in steadfast love like our Father. And looking at how this connects to the previous verse, uh, let's look at verses four and five again. So train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. The word of God may not be reviled. And so, so first to the married men in the room and then also to the single men and just all men in general, Married men, what does it look like for your wife to love you and your kids? What, it, what does it look like for her to, to keep the home and to submit to you? And I don't mean like, how is she doing in that and how can you find a way to correct her where she's going wrong, okay? What I mean is, what is it like for her to love you and to submit to you? Are you easy to love? Are you a joy to submit to? When your wife looks at how she can serve you today, is she going to have to navigate your short temper with, with her and the kids and your dismissal of her concerns? Or is it clear how to love you? Because you communicate and you care for her in such a way that in Christ, submitting to you is good. Because she knows that you do what is right and good for her and for your family. And so, just like I mentioned a little bit uh, earlier, uh, hopefully this litmus test of hypothetical questions of what it looks like to love you and to submit to you is not a place where you dive into shame. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, there is none of that in Christ. No condemnation, no shame, as Romans 8 says. Only invitation by the Holy Spirit's power to look at and step into the great role of being a man worth following. And that brings me to my single men. My brothers, I see you. We're not talked about very much. I would probably go out on a limb here and say that most of the single men here are like me in that while you are not yet married, you desire to be. For the single men looking forward in particular, but also for just all men, I want you to ask yourself, am I a man worth following? Now go down this path with me for just a moment. Am I a man worth following? And so... Uh, at the age of 18 or 19, um, I sat down with Randy while we were still at the village, uh, and I told him I wanted to pastor and church plant one day. 
um, and it, that until then, I planned on following his lead. Uh, and 10 years later, I still have, even to this church plant that gathers in an elementary school, because he and your pastors are men worth following. And so single man who wants to be a husband and father and is not yet, are you a man worth following? Are you and I the kind of men that can ask a godly woman to follow us in pursuit of Christ's kingdom? Build a family together, build a church together. And I, and I really wanna focus on what that question means and how you should try to answer it. Am I a man worth following? Not because you're super skillful and you have your money together and you have a stable job and you own a house. Instead, look at who you are in Christ. If you, are if you have indeed placed your faith in Jesus, in Christ you are a new creation. Your desires are new, your attitude is new, you are a new creation. How are you putting sin to death as a new creation? Not by your own power, but by the power of Christ. How are you communing with our triune God daily in prayer? How are you being shaped and formed into the word of God not into the world. And so the tendency in hearing these, these rhetorical questions, even for me in this moment, and for all of the groups, not just single men, is to say, nope, I'm the worst. All these rhetorical questions are burdens and they're reminders of my failure. And, and I'm not entirely sure how, how Jake said it in the past, but it, it stuck with me. And he said something to the effect of, it's okay to admit and to know you're doing well in an area. In my darkest moments, trapped in the spider web of anxiety, I worry I'm not a man worth following. But in most moments, because of the gracious encouragement, mentorship, and correction of older men, like my pastors and others, I can say that I am because of and for the sake of Christ, not me. Please, men, younger men, have men as peers and mentors in your life to help you being a, be a loving, servant-hearted leader in everything. Lord willing, as a future husband, father, pastor, church planner, whatever you and I end up being or not being uh, in this lifetime, by the power of the Spirit, then, and as the men we are today, it should not be a burden to ask somebody to follow us. It should be a joy because we are pointing to Christ. The point of humility here and, and everywhere, is not to think of yourself less, as C.S. Lewis puts it, um, or think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. And the answer to the question, am I a man worth following, is not, yep, I'm great, or no, I'm the worst. Hopefully, wrought in you by the Holy Spirit, you can say, yes, not of my own power, but because the Spirit is making me into the image of Christ day over day. Your call in self-control is to lead not from pride, but to lead from a place of humble service like Jesus so that your wife, your kids, and your church can be led in the Lord in everything. And so all younger men, single and married, take a look at the older men in your life. How do they lead their families well? And how can you learn from them? These men that are worth following, how did they become men worth following? How do, you, how do they lead and disciple their families in such a way that their wives joyfully submit to them and love the whole family? We have great examples here at Northbrook. Watch them and ask them. Present the gospel in your humility 
your growth, and in your self-control, young men. And so for everyone here in, in Titus 2, Paul has had a lot for us. Um, younger men are to be self-controlled in everything, growing into the kind of men that families continue to long to follow. Uh, older men are to stay level-headed, to cultivate dignity, and remain steadfast in their love. Older women are to be building up uh, and reverent in how they use their speech instead of giving themselves over to alcohol and gossip. And younger women are to sit under the purposeful teaching of older women, following their lead and how to love their families and submit to their husbands. And so all of this is wrapped up again under the heading of not self-indulgence, but self-control. To be a Christian, no matter what your age or your gender or your position, you are to be self-controlled. And so speaking through, throughout this passage at the end of, of various commands, Paul tells us why we are to be self-controlled. And so here um, at the end in verses 11 through 14, he tells us how we are to be self-controlled. So let's look at, uh, let, let's look at why first, though, we are, uh, as Christians, are to exercise self-control um, and restraint in all that we say and do. So the last phrase in verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled, and then in verse 8, um, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us, and then lastly in verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Why are we to be self-controlled? The reason is not for our own personal benefits, primarily, though you will gain great joy in pursuing righteousness. Why we are to be self-controlled is to glorify our Father in heaven. The why is that God's word would not be reflected on poorly by our poor behavior. That those who seek to tear down and revile Christians in the world would look incredibly foolish trying to do it. Why we are to be self-controlled is so that in everything, sound doctrine would be adored, adorned. And so often as Christians, we allow people to proliferate the lie that sound doctrine and gospel living don't go hand in hand. But you don't have one without the other. James 2, verses 14 through 17 says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of them says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so if indeed you are in Christ, your works of self-control, of laying yourself down for your family and your church, they all proceed from your faith. They don't cause your faith, they proceed from your faith. And so at the core of that faith is a confession and a belief in a core sound doctrine about who Christ is and what he's done. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And so the purpose of our good works, whether, whether they're deeds that feed the poor or their behavior that elevates God's design for all of humanity, it's to dress up, to make beautiful, and to present the gospel to a dark world in all of its bright, beautiful glory. The gospel, that Christ died for the sins of all who would come to him. That he was buried, he was truly dead, the great, uh, and, and he resurrected supreme 
over sin and death. He appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses before ascending to heaven, where he now sits in power at the right hand of God the Father. Why do we leave the self-indulgence of the flesh and of the world? Because as verse 12 tells us, the grace of God appearing and bringing salvation then moves us to renounce ungodliness, those passions of the world, and instead we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Why do we do it? Well, God has saved a people to present the gospel within the church and to the world. But the task is heavy. Self-control means putting sin to death every single day. It's not fix the big sin in your life and then eventually all the other ones will get handled. It's more like kill one, celebrate, kill the next one. In your own power, your own motivation, your own discipline and plans, this task is impossible. It's absolutely impossible. How do I know this? Well, Jesus wouldn't come to die on our behalf if you could, in your own power, save yourself from sin and commit yourself to righteousness. And so, if we can't do it ourselves, how do we do it? Well, in righteousness and godliness, we live self-controlled lives that present the gospel in such a way that it is made beautiful and represented well. How do we do this? Well, verse 13 says this. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our direction and our motivation is that Jesus is coming back. And when he does, our hope will be fully realized. And I don't know about you, but quite possibly the mistake I make most when looking at my sin and the destruction it brings to my soul, the ripple effects it has on the people around me, and the grieving it gives to God's heart, I just jump straight into fix-it mode. What can I do in my discipline, my willpower, my skill set, my learnings? What can I do with my own hands to put this sin to death? And how does that turn out for me? Well, am I successful? Sometimes for a short time I am. Um, I recognize this incessant need within myself to prove myself to God and others, despite the fact that Christ has set my status himself for me, totally independent of my own work. And, I rec- and, and my response is, yeah, I should make sure not to prove myself um, the next time a conversation like this comes up. And then the next one or two times go pretty great. And I keep my mouth shut. Self-control, empowered by me, comes, but it also goes like a vapor. It always will. Uh, when, when you or I look at the instructions for self-control, when it comes to dignity, steadfastness, slander, alcohol, loving our families and our church, We can't walk away and take from that time to work hard. Something I've had to learn to do a lot lately is to just stop and pray. And go and pray and continue to do what I'm doing and pray. Honestly, I just need to pray. And in the middle of of a call with a really difficult coworker, you can tell where my head's at, um, or telling your kid to stop making that sound again, your own empowered self-control with an earthly present mindset will only get you so far. So what would it look like for you to really quickly just pray, Lord, help me not go off right now? With a mindset looking at Christ's return. Christ is coming to rid the world of sin. Do you pray like that's the case? Be honest with God. He already knows. He already knows that you want to go off. So, with a heavenly future mindset, knowing that you've been saved by God and he's coming back to fully realize that salvation in you and rid you of sin, pray 
that he would empower you, empower self-control in you. God the Holy Spirit is the one who took out that heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit, he's already at work in you if indeed you are in Christ. So pray and ask God to invite you into what he's already doing in these moments. That for the sake of how you present the gospel to everyone, you would be self-controlled. God has saved a people to present the gospel within the church and to the world. Please don't forget this. Our God has saved a people from sin. And, and, and while we still live in a world with sin where it exists, and as new creations, um, we, we, we just tend to act like our old selves still. But it, we are still saved from the consequences of sin and death, and we now have life with Jesus forevermore right now. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, reminded of our adoption by our Heavenly Father, looking to the return of Christ, we are a people saved from sin to do good works so that within the church and in the world, the name of Jesus will be made great. For the sake of following our great God and our great Savior, Jesus Christ, may we be self-controlled, humble people here at Northbrook who adorn the gospel with great beauty and live in such a way that others come to follow Jesus alongside us. Let's pray towards that end. Father, thank you for giving us the great gift of your son, that we are not called to put to death sin and self-indulgence through self-control by our own power, but instead, um, as a people that you have saved, you have called us to reflect your gospel and sound doctrine, not through the work of our own hands, because Christ has already done work on our behalf. Holy Spirit, we ask that uh, who we are lines up with how we're acting, that we are righteous in Christ. Would you make us that way? Lord, I ask all these things for uh, the older men of Northbrook Church, the, the younger men, the older women, the younger women, for all of us, that we be self-controlled, not for the sake of getting our life together, but we would do it for the sake of making your name great. In Jesus' name, amen.